This is episode seven of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. I'm really pleased to welcome Michelle Ballon to the podcast. Michelle has over 12 years experience working within BI and analytics, which has seen her work for the likes of Billy, Casper, Google, and most recently Future, where she's currently heading up their data analytics team. My firm belief that this is a must listen for anyone that is interested in what it takes to establish a culture of self-service analytics and why data governance should be embraced and definitely not feared. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. And if you uh, could give everyone a bit of a kind of whistle-stop tour to your career and how you found yourself to be kind of building what you are at Future. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I can go into to my career and, you know, how I got here um, in quite a bit of detail if it's of interest. So, as you mentioned, currently leading the data team at Future. Um, Future's a startup in the fitness tech space. Um, we're basically trying to make personal training accessible. So we pair you with a personal trainer who builds a custom workout for you in our app that's tailored for you and your needs and your schedule. Um, you know, we really believe in this one-on-one connection and accountability um, and honestly just reducing the mental load for people who are busy, right? Not having to think about their fitness routine. So it's a lot of fun and I'm very happy to be there. Um, in terms of how I got here, so as you mentioned, been working in data for a little over a decade. I started as a digital product analyst, um, which I think was very key to who I am today as an analyst. Um, but so really being the person who was dotted mind into engineering, working closely with product engineering um, and design to optimize digital products, whether that's like a website or an app, and also running different experimentation programs. So always you know, thinking about learning and optimizing and iterating. Uh, and so I worked at a few different startups across e-commerce and media early in my career. And I, I really believe, you know, reflecting on each of them, they were so transformative for me in different ways. I could probably talk about it for hours, but I'll try to keep it succinct. So um, I think Thrillist was really one of the first that molded me into who I am today. In terms of an analyst, I had a wonderful manager who there taught me the um, you know, how to appreciate clean data governance, clean tracking schemas, um, being resourceful and going back and debugging an analytics issue that you might be coming across. Uh, and, you know, after that experience, whenever someone asks me, oh, I'm, I'm interested in hiring a product analyst, someone who can manage our digital product analytics, I always recommend going to a media company to source them because in media, online media, um, you know, the website is the product, it's the main source of data. So, so your, your heap or your mix panel or your amplitude, it can't be a mess, it has to be clean. There's, you know, it can't, a lot of companies, you do see those platforms are just a hot mess. Um, but in media, yeah, you, that yeah. really, you that really won't try. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, from there, I ended, on, ended up moving over to Casper. I worked with um, Scott Brightenother, who's now the founder of Brooklyn Beta Co. Uh, that was yeah. another just totally transformative experience for me. Learned a lot about, you know, the simplicity, the, the value of simplicity in analytics and also just what it means to be polished about your data output. Um, and while I was there, because I was working on the digital product side of things, I also got a lot of exposure to um, how additive it can be for engineering teams to follow like agile and scrum processes. And it's it started to click in my mind, oh, data is kind of similar and we can operate in a similar fashion. And that's sort of where I started applying that same operating model to my work or in terms of, you know, yeah. sprint planning, capacity planning, prioritizing, um, breaking big tasks into smaller, 
sizable, you know, manageable pieces like spikes and investigations and requirements gathering. Um, Casper is also where uh, we were one of the first companies to use DBT. And so that was like a totally thrilling experience. I just remember us being, it just, it just really felt like when we discovered DBT, it felt like everyone was winning, right? Like yeah. we were winning because we were learning about this new, better way of working more efficiently. Um, the stakeholders were winning because our data or the quality of our data products were better and they were able to you know, rely on them more heavily. Um, and then also we were giving feedback back to the DBT team. Granted, I'm sure they would have ended up in the same place had we not given that feedback, but uh, it was still just fun to be part of the process. Uh, and so, yeah, after, while I was at Casper, I saw um, Ryan Szynski, who was like the head of growth at the skim speak on a panel. And it was really cool to hear about his, you know, perspective and how they were using data at the skim, which is, um, if you're not familiar with it, like a daily newsletter for millennials breaking down complex news topics. Yeah. Um, and just hearing about how they were using data to grow. Um, so I ended up joining him over there. And that was another great experience where I learned about how data could be used, not just for reporting, but also more of those operational workflows, sort of what you're seeing today. Most people are using like reverse ETL, quote unquote, yeah. we, were, we were kind of hacking that together ourselves. Um, and so that was also a great experience. Following that, I ended up um, reuniting with some folks from Casper over at Billy, so employee number five. Um, took that company, you know, from the ground up to being sold to Edgewell, which was amazing, amazing experience. And that was really my first time building out a team, building out a data practice, made a lot of mistakes, yeah. um, but also, you know, did some things right. And, <laughs> you know, since then have just been managing teams. I, I had um, some experience also over at Google, like you said, working at a bigger company and then found myself back in the startup game at Future. Amazing. Oh, what an account, what a journey. And I think I know we'll touch on this uh, kind of further in the uh, on the discussion, but I know DBT kind of plays such an important part in so much um, of these advanced analytics teams and now relying on DBT and that kind of, as we call it, kind of the modern data stack to kind of get ahead. And I, I guess, you know, one thing we talked about kind of offline was your kind of passions and you know, from a product analytics standpoint, that experimentation kind of culture, mm -hmm. um, and actually going back to product analytics, and I suppose looking at where it is now, we've seen such growth in that area. Do you put that down to the kind of rise in, you know, importance and relevance of this kind of modern data environment that we're seeing now? Because there's so many new tools and applications and services that everything seems to be sitting and using DBT and using all these orchestration tools. Um, yes. So you're saying digital product in particular? Yeah. So the way digital, I've seen the way that kind of most of these digital product environments have kind of set themselves up and they are sitting and utilizing this modern data tools. Do you think it's these modern data tools have made that kind of experimentation nature and uh, environment more effective and, you know, just more uh, efficient, I guess? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it definitely is. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of an echo. Um, but it, it, definitely is easier today to spin up product analytics um, than it was before. I would say product analytics in the modern data stack actually hasn't, I don't think really, we haven't really nailed that piece just yet. Interesting. Um, but certainly there are tools, you know, Heap, Amplitude. Um, there are some new experimentation tools like Epo um, and Statsig that are making it 
a lot easier for smaller organizations with fewer resources to build up these programs, for sure. Interesting. I know you've obviously gone into organizations and, you know, set these teams up and built them up. And one thing we've talked about before is kind of building up this environment of self-service analytics, which seems to be the prerequisite for a lot of uh, companies now. And also there's a lot of benefits which we're seeing in terms of enabling non-business unit, non-technical business users, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, how, you know, what steps did you take or do you think people can take when kind of establishing that culture and environment of self-service analytics? Yeah, well, certainly it's before even doing anything, just kind of getting a lay of the land, understanding what are the challenges people facing and really evaluating does self-service make sense for you and how Mm. do you define self-service? For me, um, I might define it a little bit differently than someone else. So, uh, you know, also I will say my experience, a lot of it is, is anchored in the fact that I've worked at relatively small organizations. Um, mm. Granted, the experience is somewhat similar at YouTube, but um, YouTube, Google. So essentially, the first thing I'll say is that when I think about self-service, what I'm thinking about is the ability for operators within the business to drag and drop and not have to write SQL to be able to answer questions quickly and like do their jobs efficiently. Um, yeah. I also, though, don't want to write SQL from scratch. Like, these self-service tools are helping me move a lot faster. Like, my mm-hmm. team at Future, we're the ones who are in there the most by far. And it's just it's just really empowering for someone to ask a question. And even though they might not know exactly how to do it in our self-service tool, the fact that we can do it in milliseconds is mm-hmm. just hugely beneficial and just accelerates our impact. Um, so... When I think about self-service, it's not just for the operators, it's also for us. I don't want to write custom SQL from scratch. The only time I want to write the words date trunk are when I'm transforming data, building a new data model, but otherwise, give me that drag and drop tool all day. Another thing I will say is that, you know, I could never possibly expect operators in the business to feel as comfortable in our BI tool as I do when they're spending maybe Mm. an hour a day and I'm spending eight a day. Um, And so I kind of like before, you know, thinking about building or adoption, we really communicate with the team that the expectation is not that you're going to be a power user. Every, every single person is going to be a power user um, and that they're going to understand how to do everything from scratch. And we are co- completely off in a silo. Like you're on your own. Mm-hmm. It's a partnership. It's still a partnership. Um, and like, we also kind of try to set expectations that, yeah, it's going to be overwhelming. And like the main goal for us here is for you to know what's possible and what you can ask yeah um so that when you come across a problem you know where to go but it's not the expectation that you're gonna know how to do something exactly so anyway that's you know in terms of expectation setting i think that's super important otherwise you know understanding what are our objectives what's the highest priority thing we can do what are the things that we can do that will pay dividends in the long run maybe it's like our first core model is our users model and we're gonna start with very basic um metadata about our users and then over time we're gonna expand it and we're gonna build upon it but um, what are the, what are the things that if we do it today, it'll help accelerate us in the long run and being very thoughtful about how we do that. So requirements, gathering, understanding the challenges, getting feedback, um, on an iterative basis, and really just thinking about yourself as a product manager mm. and your product is your self-service platform and your consumers, your, us- your users are the operators of the business. So really approaching it from a similar perspective. 
I like that. I like the concept around, we, we've seen such a big growth in the demand uh, and expectation of data product as a function. Do you, do you, would you say um, the decision to drive the adoption of self-service analytics sits with you? Or do you think that sits with that kind of the C-suite and the, the people who are championing and maybe sponsoring that project internally? Because a lot of, you're right, Every there's so many benefits, isn't there? Data-driven decisions, you know, better data governance, redu- reduction of backlogs on you uh, and your wider team. But in terms of trying to get people, as you rightly said, you don't want them to be scared off thinking they're all going to be power users. But do you think that adoption of it is supposed to be driven by yourself? Or do you think that has to sit with someone in that C-suite who's saying, look, this is the record, this is the benefits it will bring us? That's a good question. I, yeah, it certainly helps to have a C-suite that is, you know, encouraging and um, positively reinforcing the use of data in applying and making decisions and just uh, reinforcing when people use data to measure their impact and understand, Mm. like, where can I be most impactful for this business? Um, But ultimately, like I said, it's also for us. And I think if you just have this, like, you know, quick win experience, they, they experience that aha moment, they're bought in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it, it's a pretty easy sell, especially, you know, having done this a few times and knowing what it could yeah. look like when it's successful and being able to describe that. And I think ultimately it's like when you, when you see a dashboard and you're seeing a trend, are you able to double click on your own in that moment to kind of uncover, okay, what is it that's driving that trend? Or do you have to submit a ticket to someone and then wait a week? Like, you know, you just want to move fast and iterate. Yeah. So um, generally people, get excited about um, the potential as soon as they experience that moment. Yeah, as you said, that kind of aha, instant answer and identifying something on a trend that they can then go to their kind of colleagues and go, I've spotted this, as opposed, as you say, going into yeah. kind of raising a ticket, yeah. waiting for you guys to come back. Yeah, and, so- and another thing I will say about um, the self-service, like the drag and drop functionality is um, we've used it so similar to the way teams use like Figma. Like we'll mm. pull up, a, a query in our drag and drop tools with everyone in the room and like people can ask questions on the fly and we can, and because of DBT, our models are so fast that we can yeah. in that moment, Oh, you have a question about this. Let's see. And it takes two seconds. And so it really just feels collaborative. Everyone's excited. And it's another opportunity for them to see and sort of in terms of the training, like, Oh, this is what's possible. So now when I have that problem, I can know where to go. Yeah. No, I like that. And obviously that ties in quite nicely to kind of, data governance and having a very strong kind of data governance strategy because I think the reality is self-service analytics can kind of uh, it forces better data security it kind of improves kind of data governance just generally but you know in terms of you going into an organization who let's be honest data governance used to be that kind of dirty word where they're all like oh it's rules regulations you know but for you going in what do you think is behind a strong data governance strategy and you know how can you know, why should it be embraced? And as I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, the podcast, kind of not feared. Yeah, I mean, I am like a data governance junkie. I, I'm curious <laughs> to see if anyone is as psychotic as I am about governance. That's the right um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think like, again, it comes from that experience of being a junior analyst and not having access to answers and like, being asked questions and feeling like I could not for the life of me figure it out because everything was a mess. Mm. Um, and so, you know, like 
I, I think in terms of making governance successful, if you think about any, onboarding any tool, you want to be very thoughtful and deliberate upfront because any tool can turn into a mess. DBT can become a mess. Hmm. If you if you onboard Stripe at your organization, you don't read the, the API docs and you don't really understand how it's meant to be used, you could end up with a total mess and then it just creates you know fires that you're putting out constantly and it slows you down in the long run. So I'm all about being very thoughtful upfront, slow down in the beginning so that you can accelerate your work in the end. If it takes one extra minute to write a thorough description of what a dimension means, um, take that time because in six months, in two years, you're going to look back and you're going to wonder, oh, what was that again? And rather than having to go chase down the whole pipeline in reverse, you can just read that description. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it keeps you moving quickly um, and, you know, you quickly realize that. So um, I will say in terms of governance, like it also helps with polish and it also helps set your team up for success in terms of being viewed as a real strategic partner. Mm. If everyone in the organization is look, looking at your BI tool and they're like, this is so clean and documented and I understand everything so thoroughly, the team that put this together must care and must be you know, high performers and have high quality output. So I'm gonna involve them in this next project. Um, so it really does, I think, set you up to be a successful, as successful as you can be in terms of a data team. And then getting everyone involved, like I said, um, one thing that we do governance-wise that I think you know people generally know about in my network is we maintain a company-wide change log, okay. and it's like the entire organization contributes to it. At this point, I've been at Future for a year, and almost 400 records have been logged by various team members of just like things that could influence the business, or one day you could ask yourself, when did we do that thing again? And so when we see a shift in metrics, because we have this all this data governed around what we've been changing at the organization it's so easy to say, oh, well, what changed around that time? Oh, we did this thing. That's probably our like big culprit. Let's just run a quick analysis to figure it out rather than having to segment the data and try to find that answer in the data. And that's, again, speeding you up. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've obviously been on the kind of recruitment side of things where I've heard some real horror shows from people that have gone into organizations or subsequently left and they've gone, there's no governance, there's no reporting, there's no documentation. So someone yeah. leaves they take their knowledge with them and the fact you're going to such detail is that um, driven again do you think that sits with someone like in a, a product capacity where they're owning that governance piece or again is that championed more from the business is the onus I guess on you as that data product owner to kind of be the one championing that yeah I, I do think it should be on us to be the champions we're the ones who have the purview of the entire organization right mm. we're all dotted lines in different departments we all come together as a centralized unit um, and so I do think it's like, you know, it will be most successful if it's coming from us, but get people excited about it. Like we push that data in other places. So in various dashboards, for instance, like our referral program, our dashboard about our referral program at the bottom of it, you can see the list of all the things that have changed about our referral program in the past year. Um, and people, you know, find that really useful and also for onboarding new people. Um, and so I really don't mind playing that role. And I think, you know, we are at the end of the day as a data team, the biggest beneficiaries of something like a change log. Yeah. So I, I, I feel perfectly fine owning it. Um, but also related to governance, I think another key like metric that I hold myself to is if someone were to start on our team today, could they contribute to our code base tomorrow? Yeah. And like, hopefully the answer is yes. Right. It, when you think when you hear about people onboarding, it's like I'm three weeks in and I haven't been able to make a change. Like that's probably a governance problem. 
Interesting. Yeah, no, so the implications are far reaching because they're just wasting money on someone. Someone's coming in, they're not being effective. They're asking you more questions rather than saying, actually, here's all the documentation, here's the backlog, you can read everything yourself. It's, uh, yeah, and I think, I guess going into companies, I know you, you talked previously, you came from that kind of product analytics background and worked in product development type companies. And I know experimentation is kind of a, is, is something some companies really invest time and energy into kind of testing out those different hypotheses to make products better. But what, what do you think are the benefits for product led organizations for fostering that experimentation based culture? Um, because I say some companies product analytics, product analytics, product management is becoming such a big growth area and so important but what do you think the benefits are of companies adopting and kind of encouraging that experimentation culture yeah it's a good question um i think there are so many i guess the first is you know seeing the obvious it's the golden standard for identifying causal effect right like what did this new feature or this promotion do in terms of like incrementality what did it add or take away and what can we learn from that and then apply that to our next idea and continuously iterate and be smarter when we're coming up with our ideas, right? If you have those learnings, it is the best way to know for certain what did this thing do. If you just launch something, and in working in digital analytics, I saw this all the time where like our metrics are just so volatile that you could launch something and then the next day our metrics go down and you think, oh, it was that thing rolled back, but actually it was something else. And um, now you just wasted time by mm. kind of panicking, going down this rabbit hole, trying to figure out was it that thing that drove our metric down um, yeah. versus if you have an experiment, you could just point to it. Nope, we actually tested this and we know that it actually improved. So if anything, this is just noise. Um, so definitely speeding us up, uh, helping us be better. And then also just, I think, um, creating like more camaraderie and, and getting everyone involved, right? Anyone's idea can be validated mm. uh, at that point. It's, it's not just um, like there is a way to, to prove whether one idea is better than another. So um, I think that experimentation definitely helps with that. I think it also um, just the process of going through an experiment design makes you ask questions that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. So like, mm. okay, if, if we were to roll this out, and we like something that we try to ask ourselves before we launch experiments, and this has come with learning um, over time. If we're to roll this experiment out and we see that the performance is not what we expect, it's actually worse. What are we going to critique and say, oh, well, it was probably that. So let's fix that and try again. Yeah. Let's just go through that process of critiquing now. <laughs> and then, um, you know, we won't have to go through that extra the whole idea, again, of making us move faster, accelerating us, right? Like, let's avoid those situations where we are down no, I like that and I think as you rightly said it brings everyone together and that kind of we're all making these decisions and again it doesn't kick the can down the road does it actually addresses those issues looks at the different results and then you can really kind of adapt and probably amend your kind of product roadmap as a result as opposed to getting to the end and going oh no it's not yeah. working or we've we, we've missed yeah. something here yeah yeah. And experimentation is not always the right answer. Like we have many conversations um, at Future where we're debating, you know, is it is it worth the investment? Because it certainly is one. Um, and so we just basically have to come to the conclusion together. OK, we're not going to experiment on this. We're going to launch it. If things go south, we're not going to question this thing. Right. We're all in agreement that we're not going to 
try to roll back. Like we'll do our best to use the data to say it wasn't hmm. the culprit. Um, and so, yeah, experimentation is not always the right decision. Sometimes just talking to users at Philly, one of our first projects was like user testing, unmoderated user testing. And that was immensely insightful for us. Um, and that was just 10 people that we that we kind of, or not 10, maybe it was, maybe it was more than that, but you know, just, just a handful of folks that we got learnings from that we talked about for years interesting those initial learnings yeah, yeah. I mean, the answer maybe is sometimes for most companies actually right in front of them isn't it rather than uh, you know actually the users speak to them and uh, look, i'm really fascinated by your journey and obviously you, you, you've kind of gone into companies right at the beginning those startups i know you you went to a much larger organization but a lot of people who listen to this are looking at leadership and management as a potential journey it's not for everyone some love being that individual contributor and that's totally fine but in mm -hmm. terms of building and, and building a team obviously we've seen in the wider market now there's obviously a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of turbulence and there's a lot of companies are either making steps to create that kind of workforce and team and culture uh, but others are completely not investing in that and they're losing staff and in your experience what steps do you think managers or leaders can take or should take to create that kind of real united workforce team and that kind of environment of continual learning because i think that's the question we get asked is saying what's the management you know doing in terms of investing in our development here what mm. do you think say you know advice to future leaders or current leaders mm -hmm. I mean, there's so so many things, and and by the way, I am by no means a perfect manager. I recognize that I'm I'm still growing and improving as a manager, um, but I mean, hopefully, the team that you've hired around you, people that you trust, that you know, if they were given the opportunity to, you know, brainstorm what should we be working on or um, mm -hmm. what could we be doing better, that they're gonna step up in that moment. And so, not really, you know, dictating what we're gonna do, but as a team facilitating these conversations to figure out what could we collectively be doing better. Everyone's ideas are on the table. I really like agile sprint planning. I love doing demos as a way to, for people to get um, exposure into what someone else on the team is doing. Retrospectives, we do those every month. A lot of um, great optimizations on our team have come from that. Yeah. Um, and I think also just, you know, leading by example, I wouldn't expect my team to do anything that I wouldn't do myself in terms of, you know, being really rigorous with something or um, going back and debugging something like, right, nothing is beneath us. We, we kind of manage the data end to end. So sometimes it's a little bit of grunge work. Um, and so I think, you know, really demonstrating that, involving them, mm -hmm. they contribute just as much as I do to our planning process um, and, you know, just staying connected. We also do, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say that we um, we definitely try also to continually grow as, you know, data professionals. We have our dedicated focus days where we are just looking at, like, new techniques, doing individual, like, learning and development. We do, um, like, independent reading time sometimes where we'll all, we'll all at the same time read, like, a blog post or a chapter in a book and talk on Slack at the same time. And that's been a cool way to to grow and, and for new ideas to come up for our team as well. And do you kind of select the, 
I suppose not something at the topic, but maybe the domain that they're reading, or is it completely open? Is it more kind of technically led? It could it be kind of anything? And just have It's all over the place. We have a running list of topics, <laughs> and so we've been cycling through them. Um, I guess one other thing, too, is, is just that, that planning process. Um, I really believe in capacity planning. How much time is each person going to have this month? Can we set expectations with our organization of, like, what we're going to be committing to this quarter, keep them constantly in the loop of like what's been done, what maybe is at risk, um, and just really protecting them from having way too much on their plate so that there's like the quality of our work is down. I like that. And I think it's the, it should be such a priority as well, especially in a, a remote first culture that we typically find ourselves. Some some people lose that kind of connection with their staff, you know, without investing in, in their own time, you know, they kind of think, well, they're doing their work, they're delivering their projects and that's enough. But actually people want more now, uh, more than ever, I think. I think mm-hmm. COVID sort of said, oh, it's actually working remotely, works fine, but actually people still want to feel a connection with their leaders and their management and feel a, feel a culture, I guess. Definitely. I know I feel that way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I suppose my, my final question to you is obviously you've, you've gone on that, uh, leadership path I don't know whether that was sign of something you found yourself uh, in a leadership role or if it was actually something at the beginning of your career and that you actually purposely went after and we do speak to a lot of people that are that kind of maybe that mid to senior level who are thinking about becoming a manager but they they're worried about either becoming that player coach and then becoming hands-off but what advice or kind of guidance can you offer up future leaders in terms of navigating their way to becoming a manager? I would guess the first thing I would say is definitely think about why you want to become a manager. Mm. Um, is it actually the case that you want to, you know, help others grow and um, lead a team or is it more about like, you think that's the only way to grow in your, in your career? Cause that might not be the case. Um, and then if it is the case that you decide you want to try management, talk to your manager about it and, and try and outline for them what you think it could look like and, you know, how are you going to evaluate success for yourself and how would they. Um, and definitely, yeah, just keep keep an open book with your own manager about what you want. Don't, you know, don't wait for them to offer it. Yeah, the proactive mindset. And I think there's always, uh, I was speaking to someone a couple of weeks back and it's it's knowing at what point you're happy to, become less hands-on because you know I, I think if you're an analyst you're always an analyst aren't you but there's that all that moment in time when mm-hmm. you maybe have to become more operational more and manage up more uh, do, do you kind of have that in the back of your mind when when it's the right time or do you always feel I think you mentioned earlier about remaining hands-on making sure that you're leading from the front does that become harder as your team gets bigger do you think I would say I still am hands-on I would say mm. like 30 to 50% of my time, I'm, I'm actually doing, you know, work, development work versus planning and um, coaching. So um, I think at a startup, you can certainly find yourself in a position of being manager and also continue to do the work. But probably if I were to evaluate at what point does it make sense? Like, do I actually feel like I have exposure to enough problems? Because I'm not the expert on my team. I have a fantastic team and they know a lot of things better than I do. Um, but I feel like I felt comfortable becoming a manager when I had at least visibility of these different types of problems. Um, and so I really lean on them to come up with the answer, but, um, at least I can talk somewhat intelligently about different problems with them. And so there was a point where my, I've had so many different roles. I've seen a lot Mm. and that's really helped me build up my toolkit to feel confident coming across a different problem. 
However, I'm not going to be the one who's the best suited to answer it end to end. So I think that was probably a point when I felt comfortable is when I felt like I had seen a lot and made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. I think it's uh, probably a, a, a good way to close things off because I think it's uh, having that humble yet that nature of knowing, do you know what, there's people, better people than me coming in, but then my job has slightly changed for the, mm-hmm. to better the team. I think that's uh, that should only create a better work environment anyway, ultimately. If you're trying to be hands-on and do everything, then where's their chance to step up anyway? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. No, I really, really appreciate it, Michelle. Thanks so, so much for you, you know, taking the time to talk. I'm sure people will absolutely love Thank hearing you. about Thanks so, so much. Take care.